Amen. Take a seat. As you get your Bibles out and bow your heads as we pray. We'll feast in the Word of God this morning. But once again, our most loving Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being here this morning. And I want to thank you that you have made our very bodies your habitation, the very dwelling place of God. We thank you for this beautiful weather. We thank you for the lives you've blessed us with. And we acknowledge that we only have real life as you have shared your life with us. I thank you that even now we are living eternally. Once again, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me. I surrender to you. I desire that you be lifted up and glorified and that you would use this message and every message to build up your church, to turn back the lies, to shine light where there is darkness, to bring life where there is death. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We got your Bibles this morning. Ready for a workout? That was an overwhelming yes. Wow. There was some uh, feedback, let's just say, to last week's sermon, so we're going to kind of continue that theme this morning. The title for our sermon is, How Should the Church Respond to the Current Societal Chaos? If you recall last week, I talked about fallen humanity, that because of the, the sin of Adam and Eve, which has been passed on to us, we are in what Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, fallen state. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's why we need imputed to us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the condition of the human heart, the human mouth, and the human hands or human activity. Everything flows out of a heart. We live from the heart. Of course, in that state, man rejects God, and looked at Romans 1, 18 to 32, that when it comes to the truth of God, we suppress it. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We do not honor God as God. We would rather exchange the glory of God for idols. Therefore, God gives us up to sexual morality, to dishonorable passions such as homosexuality, and gives us up to a debased mind. And we are seeing this play out right before our very eyes today. But God is also giving us four restraints 
for what we call the preservation of society. And I put these up here for you to see once again. The conscience, if we re re repeatedly lie to our conscience about morality and what is right and what is wrong, and if we repeatedly attack it as an illegitimate source of, of guilt, you can run over your conscience, you can sear a conscience, it, it's rendered unfeeling. Conscience no longer will serve as a restraint to evil. The family, we repeatedly attack the family. We are a society. It's not if, but we are a society of people raised without discipline or children not raised with respect for authority and the stability of a home. Did you see the, the, the young man that just out of the blue decided he would attack those set, the group of police officers in New York City? Did you see that in the news? Where's his father? Where's parents? Where are you? you know, that just was a thought that, that kept coming back to me. Um, the church. The church has been seduced, and it follows the way of the world. It is a sad history of the church. As Israel whored after other gods, the church whores after the ways and the cultural trends of the world. If that's a strong word, get used to it. It's a godly word. It's a biblical word. It's what the church does. We seek comfort. We consume. We are consumed with consumerism. It is the number one issue that pastors face. It's a consumer Christian. Try to get someone that thinks life is all about them to a life where it's not about you and you are to sacrifice self to serve others because that's basically what Christianity is. That's a hard shift, hard transition to make. Everyone that walks through these doors is a consumer Christian. So we, we seek comfort, we are consumers, and we compromise. The result is the church no longer slows the decay and diminishes the darkness of society. The church has been marginalized, and we all know that. And, of course, you have the government, and we're seeing this play out, and this is really bothersome. But you just put weak government leaders in place who attack the last remaining authority, which is they want to abolish or defund the police. And that is not working out well. Each week we see something new happening, and it gets worse and worse and worse. That is a recipe to destroy a society. Now, this morning... How We're going to answer this question, how should the church respond to this current societal chaos? I want to begin by looking at the problem through the lens of the problem of evil and suffering in the world. An age-old problem has been around from the beginning, but it is the problem of evil. There are a lot of things I learned and I want you to pay attention closely, so I want you to get your Bibles out. And we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, amongst other things. So go to your Bibles, go to your phones, get, get this out. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you are at home right now watching this, get your Bibles out. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you're going to follow along with me. A very, very instructive book for our time. 
As you're getting your Bibles out, i.e., I expect you to get your Bibles out, which is why I'm pausing and waiting and pushing and, you know, being who I basically am, my wife will confirm that, a pushy person. Um, it's, the, this book is a book of wisdom, um, written by the wisest man to ever live other than Jesus Christ himself, King Solomon. He's identified as the preacher in this book. But the theme of this book, and I want everyone to listen to me, is that life is one endless flow of movement from living people to dead people, and you can't control life in a fallen world. You hear me on that? The theme of this book is that life is one endless flow of movement from living people to dead people. You're going to live and you're going to die. And you can't control life in a fallen world. You encouraged so far? And the book even begins on a down note. You know how it begins. The words of the preacher, verses 1 and 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the preacher being King Solomon, the son of David, who he was, king in Jerusalem, that's who Solomon is, or was. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What does it mean, a generation goes and a generation comes? You live and you die. But what remains forever? The earth. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Endless flow of movement from living people to dead people. And you can't control life in a fallen world. There is nothing new under the sun. Turn to chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, or through 21, excuse me. This theme of, of life, this endless flow of life from living to people are born and people die. Continues, I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts, meaning we're animals, like a dog or a cat or a lion or whatever. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. What is it? As one dies, so does the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. Vanity meaning measeless. It's fleeting. You're going to live and you're going to die. All go to the same place. All came from the dust and all returned to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? That's life. You're going to live, you're going to die. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 4. Turn there. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 4. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. What's the same event? Life followed by death. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as much as he who shuns an oath. 
This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. We all are going to live and die. Also, the hearts of the children of man, man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So you will live, then you will die, and what happens to a fallen world? It stays the same. Now, the wisest man who ever lived said, you can't change the fallen world. Now, who is the only one who can change the world? It is God himself, the creator. So, um, you lift it up and encourage so far. But what is life like in a fallen world? Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Or 8, 1 through 8, excuse me. Again, Solomon near the end of his life is just ruminating and thinking and as he observes life. And these are his thoughts. And this is the wisest man who ever lived. It didn't, realize, didn't know God gave him wisdom. His wisdom was unparalleled. So it's important that we understand these things. So what is life like in a fallen world? Well, verse 1, chapter 3, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Sum it all up, that's the flow of life. Some people call it the rhythm of life, I call it the flow of life. But there is a time for everything. It's time, for example, the two young people here, there's time for them to be born, time for them to go to elementary school, time to go to middle school, time to go to high school, now it's time to go to college, it's time to start their lives, and eventually, they're going to die. Time for everything. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Furthermore, you there? Verse 16, chapter 3. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun, meaning on earth, that in the place of justice there is what? Wickedness. And in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. Now, does that sound familiar? As you look, you just turn on the TV or your phone or the internet and you see the news. In the place of righteousness there is wickedness. In the place of justice, there is wickedness. This is the flow of life under the sun. This is life. And notice in the list of verses, one through eight, what is part of life. There's death. You see that? There's killing. There is tearing down. There is weeping. There is mourning. There is hating. There is war or warring. Folks, these are the times of our lives under a fallen world. 
Does anyone disagree with that? Is that not a very accurate, represent, accurate interpretation or view of reality? It is. And it is today, in 2020, and it was thousands of years ago when Solomon was alive. So I say to you, what has changed? And the answer is, <laughs> really nothing. Now Solomon continues, so I can put you in further depression. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I mean, this is a consistent message, a consistent theme throughout this book. So then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Again, what's happening? What's happening in verse 1? Acts of oppression. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppression was power, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulate the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. In other words, life was so bad that it was better to be dead than to be alive. Do you see that? But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Have you ever thought that, that it's better not to even be born than to experience life on this planet. It's not good, which is why I envy those of you who are older here, and don't take this the wrong way, but you're closer to death than I am. Because you're going to go home, and you won't have to put up with this. So I don't necessarily fear death, but I welcome it, because it, it'll put an end to this existence. And it's really, that's what he's saying here. Do you see that? It's better to not even be born than to live in this world with all the oppression. Because of, and why is there all the oppression? Why is there evil? Well, it's because of evil in the world. And because of the evil in the world, and, and that is just life, there's going to be oppression. And the oppressed are going to be powerless. Think of it this way, those people living in the worst parts of Chicago that are suffering under intense oppression, that are losing children or relatives or friends because of the violence, do you think that those people want to defund the police? The reporters that are actually covering them are saying the same thing. They want more police protection. But those that don't experience it, but it's the latest ideological trend, want to defund or abolish the police, they are really oppressing those people who are oppressed. And those that are oppressed don't have the power to change. That's life in this world. Solomon carries this theme into chapter 5. Look at this. Chapter 5, verses Start at verse 8. You see it? Verse 8. If 
you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, what's he say? Do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Don't be shocked that there is a denial of justice, a denial of righteousness, oppression of the poor. This is the wisest man who ever lived. He says, don't be shocked if you see oppression and denial of justice and righteousness. The interesting thing is written here. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. What does he mean by that? Well, it means that the very existence of layers of bosses, it assumes that life will be full of what? Injustice and oppression. And the best, and this is depressing, I apologize for this, but the best that fallen humanity can do is to curb the oppression, never eliminate this painful reality and the best they can do is to try and curb it by, peeping, by keeping people accountable. You see that? That's what this means. This is life under the sun, this side of heaven. Does it continue this encouraging theme? Chapter 7. In my vain life, chapter 7, verse 15. Everyone there? Chapter 7, verse 15. Don't think of a person being vain when you hear the word vain. It means it's meaningless. It's fleeting. In my vain life, in my meaningless life, Solomon's saying, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the wicked seem to flourish while the righteous seem to suffer? Again, it's the whole idea of the problem of evil and suffering. My question to you is, when you look at verse 15 of chapter 7, does that sound fair to you? Does it? Well, no. Well, here's a newsflash for some of you that are younger, and maybe, hopefully if you're older you know this, but maybe those of you that are younger don't, but here's a newsflash for you that life is not fair. It is not fair. If you don't know it by experience, you eventually will. This is life in a fallen world from the perspective of the wisest man who ever lived. And what is Solomon's advice to the evil and suffering and injustice in our fallen world? This, I think, you ought to write down, memorize, and put into practice because it is so practical. The first thing you need to do is this. Remember God's judgment is coming. He created you. He is a God of justice. If justice is, and he loves justice, in righteousness. And if it's not done on earth, you can be sure it will be done when he comes again at a time of judgment. Because it's, it would defy his very nature. God would not be God if there was never justice. It is coming. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 14 
through 17. Turning your Bibles there. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And this is a predominant theme in Ecclesiastes. Is everybody there? Okay. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. In other words, what's happened in the past, all the injustices of life and so on, he doesn't forget it. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Just listen to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. You don't have to go there, but just listen. Write it down if you want, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14. It says this, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If you're alone and... and you're committing some sin, you're never alone. Get that through your thick skulls. He's always there with you. He's watching. So what you do in secret, it'll be exposed. It'll be brought out. The point is this. God remembers everything. And what is in the past is in the past, is what the text was saying. We forget the past, right? Can you tell me any grievous sin that you committed five years ago? Take a whole year, and you committed some pretty nasty sins, right? Acts of unrighteousness five years ago. Can you tell me what they are? Most of us can't. We forget. Or 10 years ago. Guess who doesn't forget? God remembers everything. And what has happened in the past has not escaped God and will have its day in his court. So what do you do? Well, you set your mind on God as the one who will resolve all the injustice and unrighteousness. This is completely biblical. What did Jesus say? When you're being persecuted, how do you respond? Rejoice. Don't retaliate. Well, why? Why would he say that? God is watching. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So for all of the injustices in, in the world, for all the, you know, the social injustice and all the longing for social justice, it will never happen in this world, is what Solomon in essence is saying. But God will, will judge everything in his time. Because there is a time for everything in this world, and then it's going to be his time when he comes again and renders judgment. Resolve, remember, burn it in your conscience. God's judgment, remember it. Number two, and this is crucial now, because Solomon has painted a pretty bleak picture of human existence, hasn't he? And I think everyone has to agree and shake your head that, that his view, his take on reality is dead on. It is dead on accurate. It is an objective take. It's not subjective. 
do this one. And he says this, and we're going to look at every verse, and there's a, there's a number of them. He stresses this point, because life basically sucks, pardon my language, on earth, enjoy as much of this life as you can. Enjoy life under the sun, meaning on earth. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. I'm going to make you go there. Get your Bibles out. I'm not going to go forward until everybody's there. If you're watching online, get them out. You may want to underline these verses just to remind you because life is so overwhelming and it is so... I mean, this life is... Just so you know, this life on this earth is so awful compared to what life will be like in heaven. So don't settle. Better things await. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Find enjoyment in life. Find enjoyment in your labor, in your work. Go to chapter 3, verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Be happy in your activities. Enjoy life. Go to chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Do you understand that if you were to look at life as a line on an eternal line that goes forever in every direction, like east and west, your life is but a small dot on eternity. While you're in that little small dot in view of eternity, enjoy life. Eat, drink, be merry. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to what? Eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So your life, your very experience of life is described as toil. Did you catch that? So enjoy life. Chapter 9, verses 7 and verse 9. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless or vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Turn to chapter 11, verse 8. Chapter 11, verse 8. 
if you're saying, Pastor, I think I get the point, well, this is the reason why I am gently hammering this into all of us. Because life is so awful, let's enjoy life as we can. So I want you to be able to say to people that, why are you so happy in such a crappy situation? <laughs> because God has said it over and over and over again. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. By the way, you know this, reminder, the word live, I mean the experience of life, reverse it. To live is to be what? To experience evil. Is that not true? It's a fallen world. Chapter 11, verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Enjoy your years on life. So 28 times, listen to me in this, 28 times in 10 chapters, Solomon repeats the phrase, under the sun, in this book. Under the sun. Now, you know, if the word vain or vanity the word under the sun, uh, the word enjoy, evil. I mean, these are re repeated words. And, and if you're writing something, you keep repeating it, aren't you hoping that your readers will get the point, right? <clears throat> 28 times in 10 chapters, the phrase under the sun is found. And the reason he does this, I believe, is that Solomon wants his readers to understand there's two places that we can see a difference in life. One is where? Under the sun. Where's the other place? It has to be above or over the sun. What is over the sun? Heaven. That's where God is. That's the place where everything will be resolved. That's the place where everything will have its day in his court. Are we there yet? No. So we're under the sun. We're living in a fallen world. And if you have any wisdom at all, i.e., I understand that everything is cursed because of the fall of man, meaning your work is cursed, your marriage is cursed, there's a sense of, of justice that is cursed. There is righteousness that is turned to unrighteousness because of the curse. I mean, etc., etc., etc. If you have any wisdom at all, Take everything that God has given you and enjoy it. Your work, your marriage, your life, be happy. That's the wisdom of Solomon. Now, the last point Solomon makes, and he repeats this over and over again, is fear God. And I'll explain to you what he means by that. Turn to Ecclesiastes 8, verses 12 through 13. Ecclesiastes 8, verses 12 through 13. Is everybody there? By the way, you know that Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, and he repeatedly talks about fearing God in the Proverbs. So this is, this is wisdom from the wisest man who ever lived. Verses 12 to 13, chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And chapter 12, verse 13, 
Everyone turn there because that is the summary of it all. It's the very end, the last chapter, and this is his conclusion. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Summary, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What is the whole duty of man according to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and according to Jesus in the New Testament? What sums up all the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what else? Love your neighbor as Jesus would, right? That's the whole duty of man. And if you love God and you love your neighbors, guess what you'll be doing? Fearing God and obeying his commands. So he's saying the same thing here. That's the duty the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments. A consistent message throughout the Bible. So let's sum it all up. Love God and others by keeping his commandments. Now, with a biblical understanding, and everyone look at me, there will always be evil in our fallen world. Do you understand that? There's always going to be injustice and suffering and that the goal of life is to love God and others, with me so far? How should the church respond? So I've laid a foundation for you. How should the church respond? Well, here is the latest trend that we're going to see, or that we are seeing. Here's the first thing that the church can respond as an option, is you can support the Black Lives Matter movement. That is out there. It's everywhere on TV. You can support the Black Lives Matter movement. Here are some of their beliefs taken from their website. It says, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. There's another belief of theirs. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. Cisgender means biological sex. You're born a man or a male or female, we want to dismantle that privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. They are a transgender affirming movement. Now, according to Deuteronomy 22.5, transgender behavior is an abomination to God. When you see a man dressed as a woman, as a, as a, a man dressed as a woman, there's not something inside you say that's not right. In fact, for some of you, you say that I find that offensive. Of course, the world would label you as not homophobic but transphobic. Is that the term? Continue some of their beliefs. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. So in other words, they want to pull down the leadership of men. It's interesting to watch now some black men come out against Black Lives Matter movement. Men are shut out of this movement. God's word says that man is the head of the woman as God is the head of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.3. The man has a responsibility of leadership. So this is another anti-God idea. Transgenderism, anti-God. Taking down and trashing men and, and, and taking down the leadership of men, an anti-God idea. 
Here's another core belief of the Black Lives Matter movement. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. So they gather to put an end to the notion that everybody needs to be heterosexual. In Leviticus 18, 22 to 23, they equate homosexual relations, man with a man, a woman with a woman, they equate that to homosexual relations to bestiality, sex with an animal, which is what Hollywood celebrates with one of their Academy Award-nominated movies. I just lost it. Frank, you, you warned me of this. I, I, did, I can't remember what it was called. But it celebrated a woman having sex with a, 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 like a, a fish. What was that movie called? The what? Yeah, anyways, you get the idea there. That, that's, this is an anti-God idea. Here's this from their movement. We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. They're against the nuclear family. What's the nuclear family? It's a traditional family, which it's two parents consisting of a father and a mother and their children. They want to disrupt that. Another anti-God idea. Now, just follow me logically here. You don't need to write any notes. Just follow me here. If something in this world is anti-God, then conversely, it is what? Pro-Satan, because Satan is the enemy of God, right? That's logical. It makes sense. And this is, this is so predictable of Satan. It was only a matter of time before the Black Lives Matter movement turned anti-Semitic. This was Black Lives Matter United Kingdom. It sparked an outrage by publicly declaring on Twitter, as Israel moves forward with an annexation of the West Bank in mainstream British politics is gagged, of the right to critique Zionism in Israel's settler colonial pursuits, we loudly and clearly stand by our Palestinian comrades, free Palestine. <clears throat> now, that was the United Kingdom that forced a lot of British corporations to separate from the Black Lives Matter United Kingdom. It came over to America because days later at a Black Lives Matter protest in Washington, D.C., protesters were captured on video chanting, Israel, we know you, you murder children too. That's taken from Breck Dumas of the Blaze. Did you know that? That's the Black Lives Matter movement. Their co-founders are Marxists. Their, their, their quote is saying we are trained Marxists. And we'll get into that in a minute here. But this is an organization that uses the suffering of some people as the means, in other words, the suffering of these individuals as a means to destroy lives. And to destroying lives by attacking morality, conscience, obviously the family structure, the church which preaches these things, and the governing authorities, and they want to replace it with what kind of behavior? Well, it's immoral, it's family destroying, it's marriage killing, right? 
It is culturally disastrous. How is this movement going to lift up culture? And we're, we're seeing it's not working. What happened in Portland last night? Are you aware of that? The violence, the shootings. They're suing the federal government for protecting their own buildings, which they have a right to. The city of Portland, the protesters, the police and the mayor are frustrated because the protesters were peaceful are now what? Violent. So the, the question is this, and if you see churches rush to this, can the church express love for God? Because, and I put this in here because what is the goal of life? What's the duty of man? God said it, Solomon said it, Jesus said it. What? Love God and love others, fear God, obey his commands. So can the church express love for God and others by supporting this organization, an organization that is blatantly anti-God? Well, you know the answer to that. But you can go ahead and support it because you've rushed, you've, you have seared your conscience by consistently denying it. And run roughshod over it and feel okay supporting it, even though you know it's anti-God. That's what some people are doing. So you can support the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, God hates racism. Black lives do matter. And the injustices done to the black people, I wish it didn't happen. But what would Solomon say to that? You've, you've heard me so far. What would he say to that? Life is not fair. It happened at the time of Solomon. It's happening today. Is it going to change? What did Solomon say? No. Since Solomon in all, the, all of human history, has it changed? Has there been an end to racism? No. Will it go on after we die? Yes. So the next option would be, as you see in the world today, we could protest. And this, is, this question here is a question I had to wrestle with without some of the other Auburn pastors. Can I protest in a crowd of the lawful and the lawless, people who, who love others, but people who also hate other people? Because when the first protest in Auburn took place, one of the pastors asked if I was going to go and protest. And to be honest with you, I was like, I know there's going to be a protest. And immediately there was a check in my spirit. And this discussion began online with some of these Auburn pastors. And one of the pastors shared a story of a, of a member of his church that was obviously in, 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 into ending racism and was going to go protest and was pushing for going beyond protesting into actual change that needed to take place, like breaking the law, like violence. And he told this lady that I can't be a part of that. I won't support you in this. That the soonest person is a believer and they're going to go and, and protest. So can I, if I'm not going with that attitude, can I go and protest peacefully, knowing that, that 
peaceful protest could very easily turn into a violent protest, which is another way of saying rioting. Can we protest? Well, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 9. Let's see what the Word of God says about this. You're going to find that it is, the Bible is amazingly consistent. And if believers do protest and take part in these protests, they're ignorant. I say, keep the king's command. You see that? Verses 2 through 9. Because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there's a time and a way of everything. That's chapter 3. Although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. In other words, real quickly, you expose yourself to trouble if you rebel against authority, is what he's saying there. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know when you're going to die. In fact, it could turn out to your hurt. You don't know what's going to happen. You can't control the outcome because you live in a fallen world because that's the theme of the book, right? And in this flow of what? People being born and people dying and you can't control life. Now you can listen to this, but Paul adds this in Romans 13, 1 through 7. I don't want you to go there. Just listen. You know this verse. I've quoted it before. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And judgment potentially in this world, but judgment definitely when God comes. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because you don't want to feel guilty, right? The same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And by the way, there are two ministers in the Bible. Me, pastors, and guess who else is the other minister in the Bible? The police. So let's defund the ministers. That's what this means. It's the only two places in the Bible the ministers for your good are your pastor and your policeman. Now, I want you to remember, 
what does Black Lives Matter believes? Or Black Lives Matter believes? What's some of the stuff I just shared with you, some of their beliefs? I didn't take you to all of them. So do you really want to protest to support that anti-God agenda? Even if it's a peaceful protest, do you want to be a part of that? If you did, or if you do, who would you be rebelling against? God. Who would you risk falling under his wrath? You're going to risk falling under the wrath of God. I just want you to understand, you can look at Romans 13, but this is what Paul is saying. It is necessary to be in subjection to authority. And we're seeing that. For those that, that refuse to be in, subject to authority, they're destroying the culture, they're destroying society. That's their goal. They're anarchists. You have to be under authority. It's pleasing in the sight of God that you do this, that you're under his authority. You need to be in subjection to authority, which means wear a mask. I don't like the masks, but I wear a mask because the governor said so. So you refuse to wear a mask, you're refusing who? Everybody say it, God. You think he's going to bless you? And I hate masks. <laughs> they fuck up the glasses, you know? I digress. Turn to Ecclesiastes 9.3. I want to share another thought from Ecclesiastes as it relates to social justice in protests. Since you can't go out to eat after church, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take more time, all right? Ecclesiastes 9.3. There is an evil in all that is done under the sun. And you can't escape evil, it's everywhere. That the same event happens to all. What same event is that? Death. Also, let's make it even worse, more depressing, the hearts of the children of man are full of what? Evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. In other words as I relate this verse to social justice in the protests, it is simply madness to rage against an unfair world. Because that's what they're doing. It's insanity. Think about it. Protest against, against racial inequity. Let it even turn to rioting. Destroy innocent people's businesses, maybe their even lives by doing so. Do all of that. When you die, all you protesters, all you rioters, well, you've made a difference in the world. What's, what's Solomon saying? No, you can't fix it. The pursuit of perfect justice under the sun is a vanity because you can't change it. You could try and make a difference in your lifetime, but injustice will still be there 
after you die. And why? Because the hearts of the children of man are what? Full of evil. Only God can bring about the end of justice, or the end of injustice, that is. And he will. So what do we do? Chill. Live happily under God's providence with what he has given you. Stop fretting. Enjoy what God has given you in your brief, miserable life here on earth. (laughs) Enjoy as much as you can, knowing as a believer what lies ahead. How did Peter advise the church when they were suffering under social injustice at the hands of a corrupt emperor? And by social injustice, this is what I mean. Persecution to the point of death. The church historian Eusebius estimates great multitudes of Christians were martyred far beyond a few deaths that shouldn't have happened, but a few deaths that happened over the last few years that have led to this current societal chaos. Everybody, go to the New Testament. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. You're going to see, once again, another amazingly consistent thought. I mean, you think God wants us to get this, it's repeated throughout the entire Bible, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 21. Does this sound familiar? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Did Solomon say that? Yes. Did Paul say that? Romans 13, yes. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? What is it? Submission. Submit to the authorities over you. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. A lot of foolish people right now. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, which is what people are doing, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, there it is again, honor the emperor, ouch. In that environment, in that context, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You have a, you have a boss that's, that's not just, that's unfair to you? What are you to do? Submit. This is a gracious thing. I want you to highlight that word gracious, if you would, in your Bible. Verse 19, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You you mess up, you sin, there should be a consequence. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, again, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So three, two times the word gracious is there. For this you have been called. You understand that? What is part of your calling? 
Well, it's submit, but in, in what else? To suffer. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So if you do nothing wrong and you suffer unjustly, Peter says two things. First, you put yourself in a position to receive divine grace to honorably endure it. Do you understand that? It's a gracious thing. What did, what did Paul, he plead to God with the thorn in his flesh three times, take it from me, and what was God's word to him? My, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. You are given grace and a divine enablement to, to walk through, to endure, to, to even grow stronger through this suffering as he perfects your character. And the second thing Peter says, that's just part of your calling, which is another way of saying that's just part of life in a fallen world. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ because he too suffered unjustly. So in other words, I'm saying this when it comes to protest, there is a danger in protesting against suffering. You follow me so far? How do you know that the suffering you are enduring is not from God to perfect your character? The pastor, you said it yourself. God hates racism. And I want to protest to bring more awareness to the systemic racism and police brutality that has plagued our country. Let me tell you something. If that's what you believe, you've been deceived. A 2013 article by Max Fisher in the Washington Post. You heard what I just said there. Your pastor is quoting the Washington Post. One of the, if not the most liberal, anti-God newspapers there is. And it was titled, A Fascinating Map of the World's Most and Least Racially Tolerant Countries. Fisher reported the results of a major study by two Swedish economists who felt the number one way to determine racial attitudes was to ask respondents in more than 80 different countries to identify kinds of people they would not want as neighbors. And what were their findings? Well, Anglo and Latin countries were the most tolerant. People in the survey who were Anglo meaning what? White. People in the survey were most likely to embrace a racially diverse neighborhood in the United Kingdom and its Anglo former colonies, United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and in Latin America. So America is one of the least racist countries on the planet. <clears throat> if I didn't research this and know this I, and just followed the news, I would have thought what? That there was a systemic racist problem. My, my, my experience in life does not add up to that, but I could be wrong, right? I'm not saying there isn't racism in our country. And I don't want to downplay those who have suffered under racism in our country. I don't like it that the fact that I hear stories of other black people, whether they're believers or not, that have to tell their, their black sons when they send them off to school or whatever, 
Not if, but when you get pulled over by a police officer. That shouldn't be. And God hates that. There are legitimate grievances. But these anti-God organizations and the liberal media, they have covered the truth with lies. They have gone way beyond several injustices to conclude this, that in America there is systemic racism, there is rampant white hatred, and there is widespread police brutality. That simply is a lie. I've heard other black people say, 99% of the police officers are good. It's the 1% that are bad. But the media has painted a picture that they're all bad. Now, those are lies. And I'm saying that believers can't join the protest without being part of those lies. Now, a story is told of a man who was given a ship that was used that was to be used in rescue missions. While his ship was docked at bay, a call came in that a passenger's boat was sinking and many lives would be lost if this man did not set sail and rescue these dying, drowning people. But instead of heading out to sea to rescue these dying people, the man decided that he would try and save the people by attempting to turn back the tides of the ocean. And as he stood futilely in the ocean, pushing it back against wave after wave, the people in the sinking boat drowned. Now, why would a man act so foolishly? Well, he simply forgot his mission. And this story introduces a second response, or another response, of the church. You can support the Black Lives Matter movement. I made it clear on that. You can protest. I think I've been clear on that. You can do this. You can start a social justice program in your church. And this will be the latest trend in the church, by the way, because the pressure is on. I want to ask you this. Just listen to me, and I want to get your reaction and what you feel. What do you feel when you read this headline in light of current events? You ready? Less than 30% of U.S. churches actively addressing racism, study shows. This is from a Christian uh, newspaper. So less than 30% of U.S. churches actively addressing racism. Do you not feel that the church should be doing more in regards to racism when you read that article? I think you might know the point I'm coming from and have everything I've shared with you so far. There were a number of social injustices or social justice issues during the life of Jesus. What did he do to overturn them? Well, he didn't try and change the oppressive Roman social structure. He did nothing to overthrow slavery, but instead he took the concept of a slave and made an illustration of a believer. As the Messiah, he had the opportunity to end poverty. He demonstrated that by feeding how many people? 5,000 people. He, wanted, he could have created a welfare state. I went over this before. But he didn't do that. Instead, he used that miracle to point to his deity, I am the bread of life, and a call to salvation by belief in him. As the Messiah, he had the opportunity to end the bitter racism 
that existed between Samaritan and Jew in his meeting with the woman at the well. Instead, he called her to repentance and belief in him for eternal life. As the Messiah, he had the opportunity to make a bold statement about just the injustices and the unfairness of life in Luke 13. In Luke 13, we remember this, <coughs> excuse me, last year, that's the story of the rebellious Galilean Jews who were slaughtered by Roman soldiers while they were worshiping God. He also talked about that when the Tower of Siloam, it collapsed and killed 18 innocent people who simply were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Instead of addressing life's unfairness, he says to the people, repent. He calls them to repentance. See, to Jesus, to not repent and to believe in him for salvation is their greatest calamity. What is the mission of the church? End racism. End world hunger. Stop abortions. We're to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel. That is the mission of the church. And we must never lose sight of that. Unfortunately, church history proves otherwise. Back at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century, before World War I, there were a lot of social issues. None of you were born. Guess what was there? An unfair world. Life in a fallen world. Social injustice. Child labor. Poverty, etc. A Baptist pastor by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch, Rauschenbusch decided that the church needed to shift away from the Bible and the gospel and work on social issues. He started to preach what was called what? The social gospel. Rauschenbusch did not see Jesus' death as an act of substitutionary atonement. Rather, he came to believe that Jesus died to substitute love for selfishness as the basis of human society. He thought that the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting individuals to heaven, but of transforming the life on earth into the harmony of heaven. And the impact was absolutely devastating. Ms. Heresy was just so destructive. As these teachings spread before they were done, every major denomination in this country had abandoned the Bible and the gospel. That's why we don't have a lot of those denominations anymore. It's why they are so liberal or dying, and you have this birth of what? This church, which is what? An independent church. They abandoned the Bible and the gospel. And all, the, all their schools, all the universities and seminaries, they became corrupt. It literally wiped out every denomination, the social gospel. So when you think of the social gospel, think of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, okay? Now, does that mean the church shouldn't address social justice issues like abortion, racism, human trafficking, poverty, etc.? No. The church, God desires that his people be involved in justice. Remember Micah 6, 8? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? You know this. What is it? To do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. He also said this, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. See, for the church, social justice ministries, they must include in his 
name. Because there always will be somebody who is thirsty or dying of thirst. You can temporarily provide them physical satisfaction and relief, but what does that person really need? Living water. Jesus. So if the church fails to do this, then we run the risk of getting caught up in the stupidity and foolishness of trying to fix a fallen world that can only be fixed by God. The most loving act of kindness we can do for someone suffering social injustice is to offer them salvation through the sharing of the gospel message. This was a practice of Jesus. And in today's relativistic culture, far too many Christian leaders and pastors blindly jump on the hype train of what culture applauds. And we're seeing that in politics, we're seeing that in the business world, even Christian businesses. What are they blindly rushing to support? The Black Lives Matter movement. That they don't care about ending racism. Did you hear about it happened last night? The big Black Lives Matter in yellow, it's in, in, in the street in New York, right in front of Trump Tower and other places. A black lady who lost a child, a one-year-old child, was there smearing black paint over it, and she was arrested in, in, at a shuffle with the police, and she was yelling at the Black Lives Matter, where is Black Lives Matter when my son died? Well, they weren't anywhere to be found. You really think they care about that? So let's rush to go and support that, get behind it. The idea, yes, black lives matter. But when the fact that you say all lives matter and you lose your job, which is what has happened in our society, that's not right. And you know what? What I tell you to remember, God is watching. He's writing it down and he will make it right in the end. We don't filter stuff through the lens of Scripture. It's the, the terrible, awful, disgusting part of the church. I mean, you blindly go and follow. You whore after the ways of the world. It'd be different. I saw this article yesterday in, in this pastor, Ed Young, a large church in the south somewhere. He just put it so great. I'm just going to read it from him. It says, we need to be wary of jumping on cultural hype trains. Racism is an obvious issue that must always be addressed. We must call it out. And by the way, he's talking about what is called a Christian woke. You know what it means to be woke? You've been awoken or awakened to the racism issue, and now you've been fed a lie that it's systemic. Well, not according to Morgan Freeman. There's not a race, race problem. But racism is an obvious issue that must always be addressed. We must call it out and point people to the answers found in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, why would we call it out? Because as God who loves justice, we are like God, and what does he require of you? To do justice. Yes, we call it out. He says, I am all for supporting legislation that pushes the ball of equality down the field, but real change is only going to happen... <coughs> When we have what? A heart transformation. 
I think that we have more of a systemic sin problem in our world than a skin problem. Amen, brother. Most people I know aren't racists. Some are, yes, and I do believe there's a skin problem. I just don't believe it's systemically the core issue. The real issue is sin, not skin. Remember the words of Jesus. You will probably never see this verse or view this verse differently or in any other way than what I'm going to just share it to you. But in light of the current context and what I've shared with you this morning, remember this verse, Matthew 26, 11. If you want to write it down, you can. It's Matthew 26, 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Translated what? You always have the poor. There will always be poverty. Why? We live in a fallen world. <laughs> we can't fix the problem. So what are we supposed to do as a church? Focus on what God has called you to do. Fear him and obey his commands. It is not rocket science. This is the duty of man, right? Now, as people understand, I want you to hear me on this because you are seeing it play out and as a pastor, I don't get that op- often the opportunity to say something that is just so fresh in our minds. It's such an obvious example that I think you'll remember it. But as people understand social justice in its current form, see, that's nothing more than a phrase of Marxism that is used to deconstruct society or overturn the powers in control while offering no solutions. This is why you find these calls to do what? Abolish or defund the police. But there's no reasonable solution or alternative. I told you, I talked to the police officer about three or four weeks ago when they had that, Shannon, you were there, that accident that happened on our street. And they came to the church parking lot, went out to encourage a police officer, and they had the stupid people. And I say that the biblical term, foolish people, that wanted to defund the Auburn Police Department. So they graciously met with these few people I think it was the, the police chief, maybe the mayor, and they're there. Okay, you want to defund the police. What's your plan after that? And do you know what he said? This is an officer who, who, who was either in that meeting or heard what these people said, and it was this. They had no solution. But you know what solutions I do here? And feel free to think the word stupid. What is their solution? Well, put law and order in the hands of untrained civilians. You've heard that, right? Raise your hand if you've heard that. Raise your hand if you think it's stupid. Well, all on the count of three say stupid, we feel free to do that. One, two, three. It's stupid. Now, how is that possibly going to end well? I can't hit a golf ball straight. I'm not going to shoot someone. This form of social justice is destructive to society. It's gone beyond racism to tearing down social structures. It's an attack on authority, a refusal to submit to authority. And I'm telling you that Christians should have no part in this. So what should the church do? We should do this. Preserve, pray, peace, and proclaim. Well, what do you mean preserve? You know what I mean. Christians don't destroy the culture. But what do we do? Preserve the culture. We preserve society by being what? 
Salt and light. We are to salt society, enlighten society through godly living. I believe William Wilberforce, a believer, correct, was the key to abolishing slavery, right? This is what believers do. They reign salt and light. Pray. I want everybody, everybody to turn to 1 Timothy 2. Again, you're going to see the amazing consistency of the Bible that is really, in this regard, anti-American, but it's pro-God. Because we are raised in a, a country that promotes independent thinking and revolution. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Is everybody there? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Does that sound familiar? So we are to be known as those who honor the authorities God has placed over us. We are to be known as those who pray for the salvation of who? Our leaders and rulers. You see that? That's what we're being known for. But look at this. This is the preserve, pray. Now watch. This is the peace part. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is good. This is good, he says. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. We are to be known as those who live quiet and peaceful lives. In other words, we are not activists. We don't riot. We don't burn down businesses. We don't tear down statues. And we do this because we recognize God ordained those in authority over us. And when you weaken that authority, and hear me on this because this is playing out right before our very eyes, when you weaken that authority, what is the only result? Anarchy. Exactly. Increased anarchy. And finally, we proclaim. We are to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. We are to proclaim the moral law of God's truth to inform the conscience. We proclaim the family. Fathers, mothers, raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We proclaim support of the ruling authorities over us. Well, why? Because God has ordained government. That's what we do. That's how the church is to respond. I know I went long. I did it by design. I didn't want to do two sermons. Okay? Everyone's awake, which is a good sign. All right? But I couldn't stop thinking about this. It was dominating my thoughts throughout this week. And the more and more I thought about it, the more and more it came to me. And so you got to have to suffer in this longer sermon. I think it's the longest sermon I've ever preached. But I want you to just simply apply the four Ps. Preserve, pray, peace, and proclaim. Do you understand those? Am I pretty clear on this? So when you see churches and Christians that have jumped on this cultural hype train, it's another attempt by the enemy to distract us. 
Now, would I love for this church to engage in social justice? Surprisingly, yes. I'm not going to lead the church that way. I didn't lead the church to do Renewal Connections. Think of it as a social justice thing. Helping out those mothers in need, okay? Tracy felt God calling her to do that. I support that. That's great. And the reason why we have that ministry, because she and I talked, she came to me, we're both in agreement, she's making disciples. It's in his name. Does that make sense? If it weren't that, it wouldn't be a part of Bible Chapel as long as I'm here. We are not going to foolishly and in stupidity try and push back the tide. We're going to be on that ship that was designed to save lives. That's what we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. It was a long message. May you be glorified in this. We love you. Bless our day as we live quiet and peaceable lives in a godless world. At least it seems like that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to close with a song, so please stand if you can. Maybe wake up. And let's worship for the final song. And then afterwards, again, just exit the building. Thank you for wearing your masks, and God bless you.